0: You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 14, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Carl Honoré, the global spokesman for the slow movement. He is an award-winning writer, broadcaster, and TED speaker. His book, In Praise of Slow, Jump started the global slow movement, which now cultivates slowness in all aspects of people's lives, including growing and eating food, exercising, providing health care, and raising families. The Financial Times said that, in praise of slow, is to the slow movement what Das Kapital is to communism. We are extremely pleased to welcome Carl Honore to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, this is Robert Plotkin, the host of the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Today I'll be interviewing Carl Honoré, who advocates balancing our never-ending quest for speed by consciously introducing slowness into our lives. In the spirit of slowness, I'd like to share an exercise that will help you experience interacting slowly with technology. Go to your smartphone or your computer or tablet and find a short news article, something no more than a few paragraphs long. It could be on a news website or on Facebook or an article that someone has forwarded to you. Now set a timer for two minutes and start reading the article. The purpose of this exercise is to focus on reading the news article and doing nothing else for the full two minutes. If you finish reading the article before the two minutes is up, go back and reread it, either from the beginning or by returning to a part you found interesting or perhaps confusing or just take the remaining time to think about what you've just read, all without doing anything else. You can pause this podcast until you're done. Now that you've finished reading the news article, ask yourself, how did that feel? Did it feel good? Or maybe excruciatingly painful? If you found two minutes to be difficult, are you up for trying five minutes? Or maybe ten minutes? How would that feel? Just remember, it wasn't that long ago that people would sit down with a physical newspaper, open it up with a cup of coffee, and read individual articles at a leisurely pace for five or ten minutes at a time. And Harvard professor Jennifer Roberts gives her students an assignment to look at a single piece of art in a museum for a full hour straight. Would you find that to be invigorating or more like torture? What opportunities can you find during your day to slow down, even for a minute or two? And would it be possible to extend those periods of slowness throughout your day? We hope you enjoyed today's tip for slowing down, and that you'll enjoy the upcoming interview with Carl Honoré about the slow movement and challenging the cult of speed. Hi, Carl, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, good to be with you. You are all about going slowly. And the subtitle of your book, In Praise of Slow, was How a Worldwide Movement is Challenging the Cult of Speed. Could you start out by telling us a little bit about what that cult of speed is and why you're so passionate about helping people to challenge it?
1: Yeah, well, I I think that we live in a fast-forward culture. The virus of hurry has infected pretty much every corner of our experience, every field of human endeavor, every moment, I think, for many of us, even away from the workforce nowadays, feels like a race against the clock or a dash to a finish line that we never, ever seem to reach. And you know i'm not against speed or fast in and of itself i'm not an extremist of slowness or a fundamentalist of deceleration you know i love speed often faster is better but but not always and and that's where the problem arises in a culture that prizes speed that puts acceleration on a pedestal and i think it's doing real harm to us in in so many different ways when we forget how to slow down when we only have one speed and that speed is is turbo then we, we pay all kinds of different prices. You know, you look at the, the the toll it takes on our health and diet, on our relationships and communities and families and children, of course, uh, the harm it does to our ability to think creatively and clearly and accurately in the workplace, uh, to be productive, the, the toll it takes on, on the environment. Uh, it just seems like wherever you look, uh, the message is coming back Loud and clear, which is that faster is not always better, and that there's a role for slowness. And it seems to me that this addiction, and I use that word advisedly because I think that's what we are we've become speed junkies. The addiction to doing things faster and faster has really now tipped into the absurd. So even things that are by their very nature slow, that are designed to shift us into a lower gear, we try and speed them up too. So I live in London, England, which is a pretty fast city, but there's a gym near my house now which offers an evening course in speed yoga, right? So <laughs> even you know, this is you know, even yoga is too slow for people now. This is for time-starved professionals. They love the idea of saluting the sun and bending their bodies into the lotus position, but they want to do it in you know five minutes instead of an hour. And I, I thought speed yoga was the most preposterous manifestation of this go-fast culture until a friend of mine across the pond in the United States got invited. Couldn't quite believe this when I first heard it, but he got invited to a drive through funeral. Oh right, no. So, so you, know, you know, the church places the coffin at the entrance and the mourners arrive by car and they say farewell to a loved one through a pane of glass, right? It's like picking up a Big Mac at drive through McDonald's. And these are obviously drive through funerals, Speed, you are extreme examples of this Speedaholic culture, but I, I think they underscore how we've lost our bearings, how we've lost our compass. And, and I guess when you see the world around you so far off the rails, as I felt I did when I had my own epiphany about going too fast, I felt I had to say something. And as a journalist and a writer, my best channel was to do that wild book. So I guess I I set off to explore our addiction to speed and uh, and came back with the good news that there is another way, and that is
0: this slow movement. You said you had an epiphany about speed. What was that? A personal experience?
1: Very personal. I think when we get stuck in Fast forward, it often takes a shock to the system, uh, some kind of wake up call to make us realize that we've forgotten how to slow down and this is doing us real harm. I think a lot of people out there listening to this podcast will will recognize that for many people it's it's an illness. You know, the body one day says no, I cannot take the pace anymore, and you have a burnout or a heart attack or you can't get out of bed one day. Uh, I, you know, I my wake up call came in a much more well, it's in a way much more anodyne way, which is that I found myself a few years back. When my son was born, you know, I started reading bedtime stories, and I, and I would go into his room at the end of the day, and I couldn't slow down. So I would be speed reading Snow White, you know, <laughs> skipping lines and paragraphs, and I actually became an expert in what I call the multiple page turn technique, and I, I don't know if <laughs> your parent or any parent out there will be wincing in recognition, I'm sure, you know, you try and get away with jumping four pages, but of course it never works, right, because kids know these stories back to front, and my son would always catch me out, he'd say, Daddy... You know, why are there only three dwarves in the story? <laughs> what happened to Grumpy? And this really lamentable state of affairs went on for some time and, until I caught myself skimming a newspaper article with time-saving tips for fast folk like me to go even faster. And one of those tips mentioned a book called The One Minute Bedtime Story, right? So Snow White in 60 Seconds. And when I first read that, my, my initial reaction was, hallelujah, right? <laughs> I think <need> that <laughs> Amazon drone delivery. But then I had a second reaction, which was really very different. And that was the, the epiphany wake up moment. I thought, whoa, has it really come to this? Am I, am I really in such a hurry? I'm prepared to fob off my little boy with a sound bite at the end of the day instead of a story. And that was that was it was one of those moments of where you suddenly see yourself from the side in sharp relief. And what I saw there was just ugly. It was unedifying. It was wrong. And, and that was where I, I guess that's where I hit rock bottom and, and round and started climbing back up again.
0: You know, I can see how for many people uh, it's easy to be wrapped up in the speed and to to not see what's going on, particularly if it doesn't hit that extreme point. I don't know if you have any suggestions for people either how to notice this and the harmful impact in their lives or just to recognize uh, what it's doing for them. And if you could give some examples of, of the harmful effects that it has on people and relationships and organizations, communities?
1: Sure. That's a, a big question with lots, <laughs> lots of many tentacles to it. Uh, the first part was what are ways you can spot that you're going too fast? Uh, one, I would say this is a useful one it's one people often don't think of, and that is memory. If you find yourself forgetting much of what you've done recently or not so recently, or just, things not sticking, then that's often a sign that you're moving too fast because as Milan Kundera, the uh, Czech writer, famously wrote that there is an intimate bond between memory and slowness. And it's when we start going very fast, juggling several things at the same time, not present in the moment, not doing things in an engaged manner or mindfully, that nothing sticks. You know, you, you experience the moment and then it just, poof, it's gone. Whereas if you slow down, and you do say one thing at a time, heaven forbid, and you, you, you live that experience fully, then it sticks. Then you have a memory of it. And I think that's often a, a useful canary in the coal mine. If you find yourself at the end of each week, the end of each month, even the end of each year, looking back and thinking, whoa, what happened there? That's just a blur. I can't remember any of it. Then that may be a sign that you're going too fast for your own good
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It makes me think of my own experience. I'm a voracious reader. You probably are too. I think many people listening probably are. And I found, I think I noticed about a year ago, I would get onto a new topic. It's so easy. Buy four or five books on it, on a Kindle, and race through them all. And I would find that I hadn't absorbed much (laughs) of what was in any of them. (laughs) That's so true. That's a good metaphor. It's a a bit like memory. It's it's the same thing. It's a good example. So I've tried to, and I can't say I've become very good at it, to slow down and even reread one book. Uh, I have to say, when I try to do it, there's something in me that resists going back and reading the same book again. I feel the pull to go on to the next one. I feel, I feel your pain. I feel that pull, too. I've never been – I'm a I'm a big reader. I've always
1: loved reading. I don't like reading books twice. So that's that a big, big fat incentive to make sure you get it right the first time around. <laughs> in other words, you pay attention to it, and some of it sticks in your memory bank. Otherwise, you, yeah, you find yourself in that awful position of having to reread or having spent a few hours and not got much out of it. What you say there reminds me of that old Woody Allen joke he said once, um, you know, oh, I – I took a speed reading course and we read war and peace. It's about Russia. <laughs> and I kind of feel that, that in a nutshell sums up a lot of the modern fast forward experience that, uh, it's about Russia. Yeah.
0: That's great. Uh, so you, you've touched a little bit on the personal impact memory or being able to absorb things deeply. Um, you touched a little bit on relationships, the one with your, your son. Maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit more about what kind of impact speed has on our relationships with other people.
1: It has a huge and in the wrong dosage, speed has a very toxic impact on relationships. One of the things that you can never speed up is human connection. You, you simply can't. I mean, you are broadband speeds get faster we can send emails and snapchats more quickly but we can't talk to each other faster you know you we cannot listen faster you know people are not cast you can't switch it to 1.5 or 2 because you get a little bit (laughs) you have to slow down find the right rhythm connect with that person's tempo be present in order to listen and, and really hear that person and have them understand that you're listening and hearing and it's it's that old thing you know we you know, no matter how much of a rush you're in, you can't make somebody fall in love with you faster because you want to get married in June. You know, it <laughs> doesn't <these laughs> work that way. Or you can't build uh, trust in a, in a in a you know in a team in a, in a company more quickly because you've got a product you need to get out. Uh, you can't download trust or confidence, a team spirit. These things take time. We these these and they, they haven't, I don't think, sped up. I think we've got basic natural timelines for developing trust friendships love these things all and they all what they all come down to is time is being present and and slowing down with people and we find ourselves in this deeply uncomfortable position at the moment where the communication software all the it and everything all the technology has made us more connected more quickly than ever before but in some ways i think because we misuse the gadgets we end up being more disconnected and more alone. And this is something you're finding. I live in Britain. You see it in the statistics here. People, You know, the rising rates of loneliness. Uh, you see it around the world. It's not an uncommon phenomenon now that people have 923 friends on Facebook, but when they're in a, in a really dark place, they don't have anyone to turn to because in a sense, we've devalued the currency of love, say, on or, or romance. You could Tinder, right? Or we've developed, currency of friendship by calling what we have on facebook friends now i'm not in any way i want to jump in here and underscore a point up front which is that i'm not a luddite i'm not against the technology i have it all i have a lot of friends on facebook and i i love my iphone and you know i'm speaking to you through my MacBook. i would not give up my gadgets for anything but i think the whole thing with the technology is about knowing when to use it for its speed and then when to back off and go into the offline mono media slow human pace of contact in the real world. And, and it's about that dance between the two, between the fast and the slow.
0: Yeah, there's a lot, a lot to unpack here. You know, one of the things I hear you saying is, I think that as the technology enables us to communicate more quickly, we might have a tendency to just use it that way to communicate more quickly, whether or not that really helps us connect. Is that fair?
1: Yes, that's it. And I think it's a useful analogy there for everything to do with this fast, slow conversation we're having about that, that faster is not always better. We may be able to communicate more quickly now, but are we communicating better or more richly? I would argue that it depends on the person and how they're using the technology. If you get the right balance between the online, the quick and the offline and the slow, then I think, yes, you probably are able to communicate better than perhaps our ancestors did but how many of us do get that balance right? How many of us are, are not distracted when we're at the, the dining room table or kitchen table with our children wondering what's going on in our inbox when we should be looking in their eyes and listening what happened in the playground today, right? Uh, so I think it's about, again, it comes back to how we use the technology. But in a world where the tech is getting faster and faster, the, the, the temptation or even the suspicion is that as human beings – the way for us to keep a foothold in this modern world is for us to go faster. And I would argue that the opposite is true, that as the tech gets faster, that's when we need to slow down even more, right? Because we're never going to be able to compete with the technology on you know, crunching data and all the kind of stuff that AI is going to do. Where human beings have comparative advantage or a USP isn't the slow stuff, it's in listening. It's in connection. It's in touching one another and f- making people feel good. Uh, it's a, it's in creative thinking. And I'm sure we'll come to this later, but you know the, the, the bond between creativity and slowness, taking time to let ideas percolate and cross-fertilize and so on. We haven't got machines that can do that yet. That's down to the human being. And human beings create best when they do what psychologists call slow thinking. <laughs> so the, the, the basic message coming out of all this is that it's about that gear change again. You know, you going going fast when you need to, letting the tech do the fast stuff that it does better, and then making sure that we create lots of time and space and give lots of oxygen to the slow end of the equation as human beings.
0: I wonder how you would suggest to people that they work on uh, resisting, so to speak, the temptation that technology can create to act more quickly. It's very powerful. I certainly feel it. Uh, when you're, I'm text messaging to write something quickly and short. I've just read something recently suggesting that, um, because email and texts can be sent so quickly that means we should no longer be using formal introductions dear carl sincerely regards robert so it's not just a temptation often of the technology is promoted and marketed in a way to suggest that people use it in a fast way there's very strong forces out there uh Maybe not forcing people in that direction, but strongly suggesting at least that people act in a certain way with their technology. I wonder, you know, what suggestions you would have for people on how to stand up for themselves in the face of all of that.
1: I think you're right that there is a pressure out there to use the technology and faster and faster. I'm not. I'm not always convinced that it's necessarily the companies who behind the technology who are peddling that view. I think there's a, just a general cultural drift towards the idea that faster is better so you put in our hands a fast tool and what do we do Well we think just because of what's around us in the ether by osmosis what we've picked up in daily life we think okay here's a fast gadget i'm gonna push it to the limit and and get even faster so i'll stop saying dear robert you know thank you carl i'll just get straight to the point i i just drilling down on that a little bit more i i think that is one way to resist the pressure always to go faster and faster. I mean, how long does it take? I, I'm not seeing any studies, but it can't take more than a couple of seconds to type dear Robert for most people. Uh, and yet I, you know, the kind of payoff you get at the other end when the person feels that they're being addressed as a, as a person, right? They're, they're being heard. They're being maybe even honored in a sense. I think those little Words, those phrases, those little social moments and social rituals that have always existed and exist across all human civilizations are there for a purpose. Not partly they're there to there slow us down, but as a kind of social acknowledgement for the other. And I think if we throw them out the window, then that what is already a cold, functional medium of communication becomes even more so. And I think because we are all about communication and trying to transmit emotion and understanding and nuance, we need to defend those things. So you know, just as one example of how a listener can reclaim some slowness or can dial down a bit of the speed and the pressure to go fast with the technology, just make sure you don't. You say no to that tendency to drop the dears and the thank yous at the end. Just put them in, you know. And and you're talking about what a couple of seconds here, a couple of seconds there. But I think the payoff is, is is much greater than that. Another couple of examples of, of things that I do personally, and I you know when I work with companies and so on and, and communities that I recommend and, and I see works very well. And a lot of people weirdly aren't aware of this is just to use the, you know, the notification settings in the phone. They all come in the on position, which means that the email comes to you instantly, the text message, the Snapchat, everything, just go in and turn them off. You know, you may not have them all off all the time, but pick your moments to have them on. And I find, I find certainly for me, that makes a huge difference knowing that I'm not going to be distracted by an incoming message unless I've decided that in this block of time I am receptive and I'm okay with being distracted by the message or I'm even waiting for it. The rest of the time I'll go in when my brain shifts into that mode where I'm not getting anything done. I just need a little bit of a break and I'll then go in and look in the email on my own terms at my own tempo. And that it sounds like a very small change to make to turn off the notifications, but I I, I heartily recommend it because I think people will find it makes a big, big difference. Uh, another, tip well, i suppose or like, is you know, and people have heard this and it's in different forms is, is just to have times when you not just turn off the notifications but you actually turn off the gadget completely you know that little red button that says off on side just use it from time to time so maybe if in the workday you say there's a couple hours in the morning when i'll be online or i'm going to check email or my messages in these four slots during the day for 15 minutes, whatever works for the person because you, there's no one size fits all here, but just to establish the principle that there are boundaries and that there are limits and that we need them, that they're, they're, they're good for us. And I, that, that does make a difference. A final little footnote or addendum to that last tip is that if you're moving from being someone who is instantly uh, reachable all the time, 24-7, to being somebody who ring fences off time when you're not reachable, you need to let other people know it's you what I'm saying is you cannot arrive and declare unilateral slowness in a world that is so connected mm. and where expectations are so high you know no man is an island uh, John Dunn said that all those years ago uh, you know it's even more so today so I think it's crucial to bring people along with you to explain to them why you're not going to be available at 10:30 p.m on a Tuesday night anymore or why Sunday mornings you won't be getting back to your work, you know, and explain in your social circle and in your company, your workplace. And what I, what people often find is that they think it's really scary to come forward and say, you know, what I might be downing tools or shutting down for a little bit of time. That feels like surrender or failure. You start that conversation with the people around you, and I bet you, a huge chunk of them will say, "Thank you for saying that. I, I've been wanting to do the same thing myself." And it just makes it easier, if, you know, to to do these things together. It's much easier to slow down in a group. When everybody's on side together, or at least understands where you're coming from, than to do it as a lone, um, a lone wolf. Just and just one other little thought here, and this is something I came across recently, which I like very much, which has to do with holidays and vacation time, because of course a lot of our vacation now gets hijacked and polluted by work emails and distractions from home, and 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 that takes away a lot of the joy and a lot of the the, the repose and 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 rest that should go along with vacation. So I think it's crucial wherever you can to. You know, turn off the gadgets on and disconnect when you're away from home, but people find it hard to do and you're starting to see now There's a couple of companies here Daimler is one and it's a big car company where they have they set up a system where when someone goes away on vacation for a week say Everyone who writes to them gets an automatic email back saying this person's away on vacation uh, Your email will be forwarded to whoever's looking after their Patch in the meantime and the email that you've sent to them has been destroyed so that they don't email Mountain right <laughs> after their week and it just kind of takes some of that pressure off staff. And and one other little tip, which I like very much was in the same vein, was a, a, an entrepreneur I met, high flying, high, you know, working around the clock, doing amazing things. And he was just found himself overwhelmed by email, especially when he tried to take short vacations. So what he did eventually was he started sending out an automatic reply when people wrote to him when he was on vacation. And it said, Thank you for your email. You know, I, I will get back to you. I'm on vacation at the moment. I'm recharging my batteries. I'm going to come back better, you know, better version of myself and, and it's time. If you need, um, you know, if you can wait, please wait and I'll get back to you when I'm on my turn. If what, if what you, your request is urgent, you absolutely need a reply, then please send the same email to the following address. And the address was ruin my vacation at com, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a brilliant way of saying, um. Think twice, because so often it, it's the sender who causes the problem. Send, we send without even thinking what it means for the other person to receive it. And just pausing and slowing down on the sending end can make a big difference to the people on the receiving end.
0: Yeah, it's great. Uh, you're right. We often think about what we can do to, man- quote, manage our inbox as if all of the responsibility is on us as the recipient. Uh, and yet there's two parties to all of these conversations. Exactly. Exactly. I, I really liked your suggestions that relate to uh, uh, multiple people being involved. What I mean is, you know, they're not all just about what individual people can do on their own, standing as islands. You know, uh, you talked about changing expectations of people who are communicating with you, or the Daimler example was one in which an organization changed a policy. And it can certainly feel sometimes, to me, completely overwhelming and daunting to try to address this on my own with all of the forces of technology and everyone else I'm dealing with working on me. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about uh, perhaps what organizations can do to either change their culture or policy or encourage individuals within them to be more slow.
1: Well, there are all kinds of conversations now going on from the C-suite down around how to get the most out of technology because people at every level in in companies, everyone is feeling overwhelmed, overwrought, too distracted, unable to focus. And so there's definitely a consensus that something is not right, that we haven't got the right social norms or etiquette, or cultural protocol wrapped around the gadgets and therefore the gadgets are calling the shots and that's not good. So. I, I come back to what I said a little earlier about how it's important not to impose a one-size-fits-all recipe, but to to try for each company to push pause and take time for everybody to sit around and say, okay, what what would what would it look like if we got control of these this technology? And then from there, taking you know, running uh, pilot projects, right? I think part part of what scares companies when it comes time to change the way they use tech, they think, oh no, if we do this, then we're and it doesn't work we're toast, but you're not if you do it for a week. you know why not have a week where everybody in the company I've seen this companies this. everybody is allowed to book, say ten hours when they're not reachable by phone. you know and you have to you, you have a central website where the, the company everybody knows who's not available when, so they're not annoyed when they can't get someone or they get a replacement. and then at the end of the week, everybody sits around and says, "Well, what did that feel like? What did we like? What do we not like? Could we tweak it? Was it completely wrong for us? you know and, and I think those sort of baby steps and pilot projects is a really good way of thinking about how to how to change the way companies use gadgets. So that, that, within that example, I gave one illustration of what companies are doing, allowing staff to um, to turn off uh, turn off turn themselves off at certain times. Uh, another uh, Volkswagen has a made a big shift. They tweaked their Blackberry servers so that most of their staff could no longer receive. And this is a big company a global supply chain. Could not receive emails or send them outside working hours. And first of all, when you hear that thing, whoa, that sounds like a suicide <laughs> suicide note right from a big company like that. But in fact, what Volkswagen did was what so few companies do, which is they did that thing—a pushing pause—and they said, "Who really needs to be reachable outside working hours?" And they found that most of the staff did not. It wasn't that the most emails that were chasing Volkswagen staff home that they were looking at at the dinner table or. Frantically trying to answer in bed before their partner came back from brushing his or her teeth right? so they didn't know you're on your email again. Uh, you know, most of those emails were not that important. Uh, they were urgent because email just oozes urgency by its very nature, but they weren't that important. They could have waited till tomorrow or they would have been overtaken by events. Or if the person who'd sent them had been forced to think about it, they wouldn't have sent them in the first place. And Volkswagen's had so much success with that that other companies have followed suit, you know, um, BMW, Puma. the the german ministry of interior has has a similar rule now where managers can't contact their their staff outside working hours unless it's an emergency and just you know and that's germany right it's not a banana republic where civil servants are sipping pina coladas on the beach this is the the country that's possibly the greatest export engine the world has ever seen and they're saying it's okay to down tools in fact it's not just okay it's it's good to switch those gadgets off you know france just brought brought out a a law, um, very complex, you know, I'm going to the, the weeds on it, but essentially for certain largest mid-sized companies um, have to give their staff the right to switch off, you know, making it a, a legal right. So that's a very French way of doing it is to hand down tablets of stone from the legislature. I'm not a fan of that. I prefer each, I generally prefer each company to work out its, its own formula, But but you are seeing more and more examples of that. So you might have, for instance, some companies are setting aside one room. In the, in the office, which is free of technology and gadgets at all times, right? And that's a, that just becomes a place where people can go and think, meditate, have conversations that will not be distracted, uh, you know, and, and just a change like that can make a big difference. And the companies that I know that have done that, find that that place, that tech-free zone, becomes a real fertile you know, bubble or oasis, you know, where great thoughts are, are, are had and great connections are made. So so that's, that's another example. You know, the the list goes on. There are many different things that um, companies can do. And and that's partly what keeps me excited by all of this is that there are so many new initiatives coming out all the time. Uh, Another one, which relates to meetings, of course, meetings, we all have been through some of the worst, you know, meetings can be just such a waste of time. I think often meetings nowadays are a waste of time because people are distracted. Half the people there are looking at their phones or um, their laptops. And you're finding more and more companies saying, OK, you know, just like, in a in a saloon bar in the Wild West, everybody leaves their six shooter at the door. You know, everybody, everybody leaves their, their smartphone at the door. And what happens? Well, what happens is the meetings are more streamlined, people are focused, they get everything, things get done and they get done more quickly, which in a way coughs up what I call the delicious paradox of slow, which is that by slowing down, not only do you get better results, but often you get them faster, right? Sometimes you have to slow down to go fast. And, and that's, that's a perfect example of how a meeting can be,
0: you know, get stuff in like 20 minutes instead of getting nothing down in 40 because people are focused, right? I can imagine that one of the benefits would just be a lower level of stress. You also said or implied that it actually leads to higher productivity. And I wonder whether more creativity as well and whether you can talk about that.
1: Well, I think that when a company embraces the idea of slowing down, they get a whole suite of benefits. I mean, the obvious ones that most of us wouldn't be surprised to hear are that staff are healthier. People are, are happier. They're not stressed. They're not stuck in the fight or flight mode, which takes such a toll on our bodies and our minds. And they're just their well-being goes up. So that's that's why you're seeing these you know well-being initiatives right across the corporate world, because that's. That's connected with, you know, making your staff better, but they then perform better when they have higher levels of well-being. And if you look at these well-being programs, much of what they offer or suggest has to do with some form of slowing down. Let's look, move the lens a little over to the right then, and talk about productivity uh, or, or creativity. I mean, certainly, you've got to be fast much of the time in the modern workplace. But again, if you're fast all the time, then you're heading for trouble because not only are you going to burn yourself out, but you're going to make more mistakes which of course is a very unproductive thing to do because you then have to deal with the the mess you've made later on go back and do the thing again Uh, when you take the time to do the thing well the first time that's immensely more effective efficient and productive than running around like a headless chicken doing it badly two or three times and, and and paying the price later on so there's the productive thing Uh, But I think there are other reasons that we're more productive in the workplace now. I talked a little earlier about uh, building social capital and relationships and trust and team building and teamwork and all that stuff. When you allow people to slow down and and build those strong connections, you allow people the time and the space and the freedom to listen and to be listened to, to listen to clients, to listen to uh, uh, suppliers and so on. Then you know, the the, the the job that those people do is going to be infinitely superior. So there, there's a lot of productivity gain and people will just do things better because they won't be rushing through them in, 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 in simple terms. Creativity is another dimension here. I mean, we know from the studies people are, are doing these days that when people are in a relaxed, unhurried state, the brain shifts into a richer, more nuanced mode of thought that psychologists call slow thinking. And all the great artists and scientists and, and creative blue sky thinkers in history have always known that, that, that slowing down, letting the mind wander, uh, going for a walk. Uh, you know, Einstein used to look out his window for hours on end. Uh, Jack Welch used to close his door and, and take call what he had looking out the window time. Uh, Bill Gates famously had a couple of weeks a year when he went off to a cabin in the woods to mull stuff over very slowly, called them think weeks. You know, there's there is something about Slowing down and creativity—the two, are, they're two sides of the same coin. So companies that do put on the brakes find that their staff are more creative. They just get stuff done more efficiently, but also they come up with those creative flashes of genius that 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 that, that, meet, that
0: help a, a company thrive. Since the holiday season is coming up, which at least here in the U.S means holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah, I thought I'd give some pointers for being mindful during the holidays. The tips are very simple, but like much of mindfulness, they're simple to explain and understand, but can be difficult to actually carry out in practice. The two tips I'll share today are both uh, tips for pausing and they're pausing for different purposes or with different intentions, but both of them at their core really ask you to pause or whenever you happen to become aware or have a moment of mindfulness during the holiday season to take that as an opportunity to pause I know it can be difficult to do that in part because many of us are super busy and running around. The holiday season can be an extra fast-paced time of year for us. Scheduling, organizing, attending events, buying presents, traveling, uh, spending time with family and friends, and even when that can be enjoyable, it it can really pack our schedule and we may sometimes feel like there's just no time to pause. I know it can be difficult, and so I'd suggest that you find whatever pause there might be, even if it's a few seconds at the very beginning of the day, at the very end of the day, uh, at any time during the day. It could be a very, very short pause, and uh the first intention during that pause, if you can bring it to mind, is to ask yourself uh to bring to the forefront of your mind something that you're grateful for. Many of us do that during the holiday of Thanksgiving. It's the intention behind the holiday, but it can actually be easy to spend that day, even if you're enjoying yourself, perhaps not really focusing on gratitude. So the first suggestion is when you pause to consciously bring the feeling of gratitude to your mind and ask yourself, you may even just want to put it in words in your own mind or out loud, what is it that I'm grateful for? And if you can think of even one simple thing each time, you'll be practicing gratitude and perhaps building up a habit of gratitude. That practice of gratitude can be particularly helpful uh, when you are feeling perhaps a lack of gratitude. Something which we often feel during the holidays is frustration, uh, stress, anxiety resulting from all of the busyness and hecticness, the, the million plans that we have, the fact that the roads are busier, the fact that everyone else is stressed can add to our own stress. And in that kind of uh, circumstance, it can be hard to feel gratitude. So you might actually need to focus your mind more consciously on feeling gratitude when the circumstances are such that they're not naturally inclining you to feeling that gratitude or thankfulness. But mentioning that the holidays can be a stressful time, when you pause, you might set a different intention some of the time as well. Not just gratitude, but just pause and ask yourself or focus in on what is the negative feeling that you're feeling. And if I could make one suggestion about this, uh, certainly you can go wherever it feels best for you or and I might suggest is to just focus on what that feeling is. might be that you're at an event with family, let's say, and there's interactions that are frustrating that you find always frustrating <laughs> uh, in those kinds of situations. And you might just ask yourself to focus on what the bodily feeling is, what the direct sensation is. Does your heart feel tense? Is your breathing shallow? Do you feel heat in your head or a pit in your stomach? And see if you can focus on the direct physical sensation. One thing you might find is that by focusing on the direct feeling, you may be less inclined to travel down that path of thought about the thing that's frustrating you then experience what's called the second arrow, where you have some initial negative feeling or reaction. Uh, You might feel aggravated about something or annoyed and then feel uh, indignant about the annoyance and then travel down that cascade of negative feelings, which resulted from the initial negative feeling, which may not have been that negative. But once you Go down the rabbit hole, so to speak, you might find that you're feeling much worse. So, paying attention to the direct physical sensation uh, has its own, uh, its own direct benefit, may or may not result in you not feeling that second arrow, but I'd suggest you uh, try it. See if you can just focus on. Is my breath shallow? Is it fast? Is my heart beating faster? And focus on the heart then if it is. Focus on the breath if it's fast or shallow. Focus on whatever the feeling is, the direct physical sensation that's associated with the negative feeling that you're having. And sometimes you might find that by focusing on the feeling and being present with it without judgment, you might find that it passes. At some point, And if it, whether it passes or not, you may just become a little bit more familiar with what that feeling is and then move on. I hope you find these tips for the holidays helpful and that you enjoy the interview. And I wonder... You know, I've had my own speculation about why Silicon Valley's been complaining for at least a decade that we haven't had any more really big breakthrough ideas, let's say, in the IT world, at least. You hear a lot of uh, moaning about this fact. And I just keep wondering whether it has something to do Uh, with this kind of speed and fragmented attention that uh, we've all developed and I'm sure it goes on within tech companies. I wonder if you have any thoughts about not just, let's say, everyday creativity, but those kinds of big, deep insights and what's needed to cultivate them.
1: Yeah, I I think that that's true. I think that uh, there's – there's a small little creativity wins that you can get when one person has a couple of days off or a morning to go windsurfing instead of sitting in front of their computer, you know, and, and those are wonderful incremental injections of creativity. We we need those companies need them, you know, governments need them, schools need them. <clears throat> but I think that there, and I, I don't think there's any scientific proof of any of it, but I, I suspect that there is a deeper kind of generational cohort creativity Uh, Reservoir out there as well and and if together because so much of what comes out creatively Especially in this complex world is not just one person sitting in a room and coming out with a perfect eureka solution It's people working together um, You know creating almost like a kind of wired Single brain and if our wired single brain is made up of lots of very distracted very stressed overrushed overwrought uh, attention deficit (laughs) ravaged Mm -hmm. individual brains then that that collective brain is going to display a lot of those same symptoms and qualities, and I I suspect that there is something to that. I've 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 read similar things and had similar thoughts myself about this lack of you know really exciting. It feels like Silicon Valley is just in the business of tweaking now. Right? I mean the iPhone's a, the iPhone is a classic example of ho hum product launch, right? I mean when was the last time they did anything at Apple that really got anybody's heart? racing so i i wonder if that you know i suspect that there is something to that that theory that because we are all individually racing around that the collective team creativity or creative moment just doesn't have the same punch as it did before and i don't know i mean it it would take a historian to go back and map out or maybe a, a data statistician as well to map out little surges in creativity and compare them against pace of life and so on. Uh, I mean, I certainly in the industrial revolution, there was a time where there was a great time of, you know, in, in England, especially, uh, you know, creative breakthroughs and so on. And then it, and then it plateaued out again. You seem to, it seems to get to a point where, you know, the, maybe maybe it's part of the low hanging fruit gets created and then it's harder to come up with the, the to pick the creative fruit higher up the tree May, I'm sure it's partly that, but I think it's partly also that, that the acceleration of the society and Victorian uh, Britain had this same problem as well. Some of the earlier complaints you hear about the pace of life going fast came from the big, you know, London and so on, the big cities of the new industrial age. Once they got to a point where everything was going so fast and everybody felt overwhelmed and maybe there's a kind of overlap there or a mapping onto the, the plateauing of creative um breakthroughs i i I don't know enough about the the timelines there but that's an interesting you know subject to 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 delve into i think yeah you
0: know something you said earlier also comes to mind which is that uh you said people are uh forming relationships that are more shallow if i understood you correctly they don't have the deep connections between each other. And I, I just wonder if that also relates to this, uh, to a deficit in creativity within organizations.
1: I, th- I think it does because w- w- because so much of the creative heavy lifting now happens in the collaborative space. It happens teams, people sharing ideas and so on. The, the The starting point for people to let down their guard, to make mistakes in front of their colleagues, to float an idea that maybe turns out to be, a bit silly, but a little bit of it is genius, right? I think people need to feel confident with the, They need to feel that the relationships they have are are built on solid trust and understanding and even a kind of intimacy. And if you don't have that, I think you, you have less of that collaborative sharing goes on. And so I think there probably is an argument here that the the kind of artificialization, if I that's a sort of coin a term, um, of of our relations, or the superficialization, you know, these superficial relations and these very fast, uh, you know, uh, communications that go on in the workplace without people even saying "Dear John" or whatever, that 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 comes out the other end of the sausage machine in the form of teams, collaborative teams that just don't have the cohesion and the human social capital and depth to. To deliver the great creative breakthroughs, I'm, that 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 makes sense to me as an argument.
0: Mm. And speaking about depth, you know, in looking over your work, preparing for this, uh, I, I was reminded that you see this as part of a full slow movement. This is not just a set of techniques or suggestions for individual people. Uh, it's very exciting. I know we're not going to have time to talk about all of the different components of it. We've been focused so far mostly on individuals in their daily lives and, and companies. But, uh, you know, you're involved in things like slow food, slow news, slow aging. I could go on and on. Um, I wonder if you could talk, step back and talk about the bigger picture of slowness as a movement.
1: Well, I think that we are in a particular moment in in history now and it, it seems to me that we've been on a, on an upward curve of acceleration now for at least at least 150 years, you know, since the dawn of the industrial era, things getting faster and faster pretty much every component of our experience, our lives getting more quick. And I think I would argue that for the most part that was doing more good than bad. But in the last sort of maybe 10-15 years, I think the pendulum is swung to the other end of the spectrum now, or the dial has moved over to the other end. And and this constant acceleration, this obsession with doing everything faster is now doing us real harm. And because of that, this whole slow culture quake has, has erupted. I mean, there've always been voices calling for some slowness throughout history. You can go back as far as the Romans, people complaining that some things are moving too fast or that people are too obsessed with their timepieces or their sundials. This is not a new... Uh, piece of angst. But what it is, is, um, is a question of degree. And I think that we're now entering a stage where speed is, is, is in the game of diminishing returns and more and more of us realize it. Uh, And because of that, I, I think that we're heading towards something that goes far beyond because people think, Oh, the slow movement, you read about that in the Sunday paper and it's gone to no, I think that we're talking about a deep tectonic Seismic shift here, and, I, and I'm going to say the two words cultural revolution, and, and they're big words. I realize that, but I think that's what not only what we need, but it's what's coming because there's no other way forward. We we cannot get any faster. We're bumping up against the limits of what the human body, the human mind can take. We're certainly bumping up against the limits. In fact, in some ways, I think we've gone beyond what the planet can take. Uh, the the economy. I mean, we got a slight reprieve from the total meltdown we suffered in 2007, 2008. But good me, it's still deeply, deeply dysfunctional and sclerotic. Uh, you know, the system is the the system that we've kind of carried on turbo capitalism, uh, turbo consumption. All of that stuff is now broken. I think, and, and need we need some kind of revival some kind of new way of thinking about how we run our markets financial markets how we build things how we consume how we live together how we talk how we communicate and and i think the slow movement is a big part of that i would say it's at the center of that that conversation and you know we we still have a long way to go i i'm a natural optimist but i you know i do think that the um The slow revolution will probably be slow we're not we're not going to we're not going to create a a perfectly slow world uh you know next week or or next month or next year even but uh the the fact that more and more people are getting on board looking for ways to put on the brakes and that that taboo i talked about earlier on the taboo against the very idea of slowness i think that taboo is starting to to weaken and wane and that's going to make it easier for people to say you know what i'm going to slow down here and i'm not going to be ashamed I'm not going to feel guilty. I'm not going to be afraid because it's the right thing to do for me, the people around me, for the planet, <laughs> for my community. Uh, and I think that the more people who do that and more people are doing it, the easier it gets for the rest of us. And so I, you know, I started off on this journey as kind of the sort of, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the spokesperson for slow or godfather, or slow, or whatever, uh, you know, all those years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And, and I feel a lot more optimistic today than I did back then. I I feel much less like a, a lone voice in the wilderness and it it feels like people are getting it more and more. So um it's important to keep our chins and our heads up because we can we can turn this around.
0: One thing I'm curious about is with all of these different sub movements. I remember becoming aware of slow food quite a long time ago. I don't remember exactly when. And I always wonder will people who are really focused on food stay involved in that and not uh Uh, extrapolate from it in their own lives Uh, Mm -hmm. or do you see that happening do you see this becoming something that's bigger than uh, people's attention to individual topics and slowness
1: I think I, I had that same worry when I first began to investigate how and where people were slowing down and finding that they often started in one particular Field of human activity. So for many people, it was food. Others might come come into slowing down through design. Others through travel. Others through education. But what I've discovered pretty quickly, and what I've seen right across the board since then, is that people don't stop once they taste the fruits of slow in one realm of their lives. They want to apply that same philosophy elsewhere. So someone who starts off thinking, you know what? I'm going to take a bit more time over my food. I'm going to enjoy eating around the table without the gadgets switched on. I'm going to I'm going to do slow food. Right. Uh, I find people like that very often move on to thinking, rethinking how they read bedtime stories or how they use their gadgets at work. Right. Because it's just it just starts off that conversation in your own mind because you've had an experience. You've lived it because it's one thing to read about the benefits and the joys and the virtues of slowing down it's quite another to live it and to, to 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 feel it and once people feel it whether it's at the dinner table in the bedroom of course there's a whole slow sex movement in the classroom the slow education movement on holiday the slow travel movement at hospital the slow medicine movement, you know wherever you wherever you go people are people are using this idea people will think okay that worked here maybe it works in another part of my life and so that that for me is another gra- another is more grounds for optimism because it shows that the movement can cross-fertilize and cross-pollinate and it can stitch itself together into something coherent and powerful.
0: That's really great. Uh, let me end then on asking you to let people who are listening know um, perhaps uh, you've given them many suggestions for what they can do individually. Uh, where can they go uh, to join with other people to hear more from you about how to slow down.
1: Well, the I think the the easiest place, certainly the the the, the first place I would recommend uh, is is my website because that has you know you can go to the links page there and find you know s- s- reams and reams of organizations around the world that are doing slow things. And, and you're bound to find one in your own neighborhood or your own town or something. So that's a good place to, to jump in, I think is my links page, but you know, I've got a lot of other stuff on there, which has, you know, all the information about why slowing down is good. There's, there's video, there's audio, there's, and, and it just is a good place to, to jump off from. Uh, the, the, it's easy place to find. It's just my name, Carl Honoré, um, .com. So www.carlhonore.com. And I would also urge your, Listeners, if they want to get in touch, you know, I I get back to everybody with thoughts, observations, or if they want to share something they're doing slow wise, or if they've got an organization out there doing this already that people don't necessarily know that much about, let me know and I'll put it up my links page. Because I think one of the things I found most thrilling and exhilarating about being at the center of all of this slow ferment is seeing those connections that occur, you know, discovering that through my site, a Uruguayan architect connected with a, you know, doctor in Malaysia and together they're doing something to do with food and medicine, you know, stuff like that. It's just, it's just amazing. It just shows me how much potential there is here when people uh, take the time and, and talk and listen and listen, I come back to listening again. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Fantastic! It's really great. I, I know it can be very hard to do these things and you feel like you're doing it as an individual, and it's really helpful and motivating to have that social support and be working on it with others. So thanks for letting everyone know how they, how they can connect around slowness. Thank you. And thanks so much for talking with me today. I really, really enjoyed it.
1: I did too. It's been great talking to you.
0: Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Carl Honoré, the global spokesman for the slow movement. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with MIT professor Sherry Turkle, an expert on the changing relationship of young people to technology.